This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome back onto the show... Licensed clinical psychologist and the founder of the Center for Trauma, Anxiety, and Stress, Brooke Bartlett. So in this second conversation, we discuss a host of topics, from her experience working with the wildland community, the mental health impact on both residents and responders of some of these horrendous wildfires, psychotherapy alongside psychedelics, unpacking moral injury, the physiology of trauma, new calm, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I welcome back onto the show, Brooke Bartlett. Enjoy. Well, Brooke, I want to say firstly to everyone listening, if they haven't heard our first conversation, episode 690, that you need to first because we were chatting right before we hit record. I listened to it again. You listened to it again. We covered so much. So for people listening, I would hit stop now. If you're listening to this for the first time, go back, listen to episode 690, and then carry on this conversation. Secondly, in this monologue before we start, I want to welcome you to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thanks, James. I'm so excited to be here again. I couldn't wait to talk to you. (laughs) 
Well, I think that the best icebreaker, because we're doing this on August 17th, um, would be to discuss what's going on in Hawaii at the moment. You obviously have an extensive mental health background. We talked about your work with the VA and veterans and then transitioning to the first responder profession. But you have found yourself working with the wildland community through your eyes, you know, from a mental health trauma perspective, what are you seeing or what are your what are your worries with the, the civilians and the responders that are dealing with that nightmare at the moment? Yeah, it's it's such a tragedy what's what's going on over there. I mean, I have I'm Maui is very near and dear to my heart. Um I've spent a lot of time there and my fiance's family actually lives there on and off during the year. So it's hard to see a beautiful place like Lahaina just decimated to the ground. Um, but there's so many, as you can imagine, layers uh, to what's going on. I mean, trauma, to say the least, on all ends. Uh, the civilians, so many lives lost. Um, I've A couple of people have reached out to me just about civilians who are feeling a lot of uh, guilt and shame for maybe their, maybe their family wasn't affected or maybe their house is still standing or maybe they could have done more. Um, then, of course, you have the the responders. There's wildland firefighters out there. There's structure firefighters out there, EMS, paramedics, you know, doing recovery, having to absorb all the trauma and the grief of the civilians who were impacted. I mean, there's just there's so many layers to it. Well, in the first conversation, we talked about moral injury a little bit. I know you wanted to kind of expand on that. I think a good transition would be you're a wildland firefighter or a municipal firefighter with Wildland Interface. And you have been asking for more resources, more manpower, which is, you know, very well known in the wildland community at the moment, understaffed, underpaid. And then something happens and now it's the inability to save. So there would be a moral injury element of that. So with these responders specifically who are in, you know, um, Lahaina at the moment and weren't able to save these homes, these lives, let's kind of open that as far as the impact of moral injury on the responders, even though technically it was out of their hands they shouldn't be blamed because they you know they've asked for more staffing um and you know aside from that some of these natural disasters it doesn't matter how many firefighters you put down mother nature's still going to win yeah yeah that's a moral injury is something that i i really focus on in my line of work um and it's super prevalent among first responders so i'm just going to give a little bit of a of a background as to what moral injury is first so Moral injury um, is a very popular and widely used term among uh, military populations, particularly combat combat veterans. That's where it was first coined because a bunch of trauma researchers through the VA system were uh, treating combat veterans with what appeared to be PTSD. They'd use some kind of evidence-based treatment and their uh, PTSD symptoms, like let's say hypervigilance, by the end of treatment, those were no longer clinically significant, but they were still really, really struggling. They were still experiencing debilitating symptoms. And so all these researchers started going, well, what, what's going on here? Um, and basically what they found is that this other separate um, syndrome called moral injury that a lot of these combat veterans were experiencing. And it's very common among uh, individuals who are exposed to trauma, but it is separate from PTSD. So moral injury is basically when someone perceives any type of moral transgression, whether it be they think they've done something wrong, they've witnessed someone else doing something wrong, or they've witnessed some kind of horrible thing happen to someone, 
Or in the case that you just brought up, it could be something that's completely out of their hands, like uh, protocol, policy, funding, things like this, but they're not able to do what is morally right to them, which is help people, recovery, do what they can to help as many people as possible. And so that causes can cause that moral injury schism. And the number one symptom of moral injury is guilt, just overwhelming guilt, a lot of should haves, could haves, shame. Um, So that's kind of how it presents. So I know I'm sure that a lot of uh, first responders that are trying to be part of the recovery and and helping out in Maui are experiencing that because I'm sure there are a lot of red tape that they can't get by. You know, it's not their fault that they can't go provide the help that they want to provide. Um, but that regardless of that being out of their hands, it can still cause that sense of moral injury and those feelings of of guilt. And, you know, I, I wish I could do more, even though it's out of their hands. What's going on now? Just some of the rhetoric that I've heard so far seems to mirror what happened to the London Fire Brigade with the Grenfell Tower fire. They, you know, responded heroically. They they were facilitating the rescues that they could. I mean, they they were kind of questioned as far as why didn't they rescue more people? Well, for example, the aerials, the, the ladder trucks can only reach... I mean, it's actually a very small number of floors before you're just too far up. And World Trade Center is a perfect example. Um so they're heroes on the day. Fast forward a few days, the politics gets involved, and now they're blamed. And I actually had the chief at the time, Danny Cotton, on the show, and she's been held as a scapegoat. The reality of the situation was a company did a really horrible job of putting cladding on the building. The cladding was petroleum-based and created a fire that was the reason that all those people were killed, you know, periodic, I mean, period. So now you have these people that responded and did everything they could are now betrayed by their organization, by their their country, by their media, by their politicians, whoever it is. And now you've got that organizational betrayal as well. So now you've got the combination of moral injury and betrayal compounding what you know what's already going on between their ears. Oh, absolutely. I mean, organizational betrayal is one of the most common um, reasons I see that leads to moral injury among first responders is the organizational betrayal. Um, and again, like you're saying, there's all these layers, there's politics, there's protocol, there's so many different things that can go into that organizational betrayal, but it's a huge, huge part of moral injury that I see among first responders. I mean, I work with, uh, uh, this year, I, you know, I was working with some wildland fire and basically, um, it was a dispatching unit and they had some protocol that they have to follow where there was a lost hiker who had called in for help. And basically there was a, you know, a rescue unit, a helicopter that was much closer that could have potentially made it there in time, but they were not allowed to call that. They had to go through a protocol and go elsewhere. And then by the time that, you know, the the protocol that they follow, by the time that other rescue unit got there, the individual had died. And so those dispatchers, it hit them really, really hard, right? Because there's so many layers of that, but, you know, I could have just called this person, but I, I wasn't allowed to do that, right? So there's not only the moral injury of like, should I could have, would have, should have, but it's also that betrayal of like, you know, we knew the right thing to do here. This was a clear, you know, this was clearly the better option, you know, higher rate of chance of survival. And, you know, it didn't go that way. So there's definitely a lot of that going on in in Maui as well, as you've pointed out. Well, you mentioned dispatcher. I had actually one of the dispatchers for the Paradise Fire, which I think prior to Lahaina was the deadliest wildfire we've had, certainly in recent history. 
And Beth Bowersock, she was one of the dispatchers. So that's a, that's the kind of unsung hero of first responders. When we get toned out, we go to that event. We try and save them. There's a physical exertion, an offloading of that stress. When these dispatchers receive these calls, and some people, they're literally speaking to them before they get burned to death, they sit in a chair and they hang up and then they do the next one. So, so what has been your observation of that particular group of people within our profession? Yeah, it's just now, as I'm sure you're you're aware of, finally, it's becoming more uh, mainstream, you know, knowledge that dispatchers are first responders. They're the first first responders, right? They're the first people to talk to these individuals on the phone. And uh, they experience a lot of trauma, a lot of distress, all those things. And um, moral injury is extremely prevalent around, among dispatchers, because like you said, there's something different about being able to, okay, I'm, I'm there and I'm, I'm at least this is somewhat in my control. You know, I can try and help in some way versus being the person on the phone, but not really being able to physically, you know, do anything to help that person. And another big thing I see among dispatchers um, that's, that's very unique to dispatchers is oftentimes they don't have any closure. So, you know, many dispatchers don't know what happens, you know, whatever happened to that call or that person, um, and so a lot of dispatchers I work with talk about what do I do about this, right? You know, I stay up at night going down the rabbit hole of what happened to that person, what happened to that call. Maybe I should have done this. Maybe I should have done that. And so there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of lack of closure among dispatch um, that maybe isn't as prevalent, you know, in um, firefighters or police, given that they are you know, they're sitting, like you said, sitting in a chair at a, at a, you know, some type of dispatching center and they're not boots on the ground there. Well, a couple of things that were evident when I look at what we do, you know, you get that trying to fight the bear adrenal response through the call coming in, but then we go pull hose, throw ladders, you know, pick up patients, whatever we need to do, CPR, and there is a physical offloading of that stress, the same as fighting the bear, running from the bear, whatever it would be. The dispatchers get that spike, you know, it's it's a, a pediatric choking or drowning, you know, that's a huge adrenal response, but there's no physical release for it. And the other thing is they, nine times out of 10, are in this cave, this dark, dark room. A lot of them do 12-hour shifts, so they're probably arriving to work in the dark, leaving in the dark, and they're not getting any sort of um, sunlight or circadian rhythm, you know, setting... Um, rhythm at all so so you've got these people that are um you know disrupted physically i mean there's a lot of weight gain i think in the dispatch community they've got this adrenal response with no physical offload and they've got the the um, circadian rhythm disruption which is probably why you know the longevity of that population is so low as well yeah that's a really good point honestly i'd never really thought specifically about you know the the adrenal loading on that doesn't really get loaded off either. Um, and yeah, that can really take a toll. I mean, when we think about all the things that go on when we have stress responses and the, you know, internal, um, hormones and, and chemicals that are being released in us, you know, if those basically start to gather up and, and don't get released in some way, um, that can definitely cause a lot of detriment over time. Well, we spoke nine months ago. Um, I've come across some pretty amazing technology i've had some conversations with people for example ketamine that is you know becoming more prevalent now this last nine months year what are some of the the treatments that are exciting you to add to the toolbox that we already had yeah so i've been uh 
connecting with and and working with some individuals who are utilizing psychedelic assisted therapies for for trauma. Um, I, you know, I I'm very transparent with these individuals that I'm you know cautiously optimistic about them. There's the available research on it is extremely um, optimistic. Um, I mean, it, the research that we have thus far shows how um, it's been extremely effective in helping individuals, particularly individuals who've gone through other types of trauma related treatments that, you know, maybe they were, it wasn't working. Um, So that is definitely something that I think is going to just kind of get bigger and bigger and bigger. And again, I'm hopeful that the research continues to support these positive um, clinical outcomes. Um, And so that's something that I've definitely been, been, you know, uh, sticking my nose in a little bit more, learning a little bit more about associating with and learning from the people who specialize in those treatments. Now, from a legality point of view, what, where are you at with psychedelics and psychedelic assisted therapy? I know here in Florida, they're still way behind. We've got this whole, this is your brain on drugs, you know, throw addicts in jail mentality in this back ass of state when it comes to that particular conversation. Yeah. Um, I love living here, but we need to unfuck that. But, um, (laughs) you know, Colorado, some of these other places, they're a lot more progressive for the men and women that literally serve this country and can't get treatment in their own nation. Yeah, it's definitely a lot more. I'm, you know, I'm I'm based in California. It's a lot more progressive. I mean, you can't just have anyone being like, hey, come to me and I'll, uh, you know, give you some some MDMA. But um, to the best of my knowledge, uh, you have to have some kind of uh, licensure. Typically, an MD has to be. providing the 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 doses um in, in a very secure um monitored constantly monitored situation right so that that would be my only when i say cautiously optimistic too is that i guess i'm really worried about i'm very confident that it's going to continue expanding um as as it should if the research continues to support these outcomes however i just worry about the saturation of it um, I worry about individuals who are not trained or competent in providing this very, very, very unique form of treatment, um, starting to implement it and the the damage that that can cause. Because, um, you know, I mean, I see it a lot just even in non-psychedelic assisted therapies. And so I think adding that the vulnerability of utilizing um, substances like that uh, with someone who is not necessarily competent or trained uh, to provide it could be really damaging. So that's a lot of where my hesitancy comes from. Well, I think there's a fallacy around some of the conversation where people are like, oh, I just take psychedelics and I feel better. It seems from all the conversations I've had that you need the psychedelic itself and then you need the psychotherapist the shame oh, yeah. shaman whoever is that you know as you said well versed well educated in guiding someone through that and then that's the door that's opened you know whether it's mdma led therapy and now you've got all that stuff to process a perfect example is a green beret friend of mine who literally two months ago called me and said i just discovered that my grandfather molested me after mm, all this wow. time and he's a writer i mean he's you know, he's he's done a lot of self-work, but it was that that unlocked the door, which is obviously the thing beneath the thing. So talk yeah. to me about that. With your opti- optimism, the psychotherapy element to psychedelic. Yeah, so um, 
basically the reason, so exactly what you're saying, this isn't, Hey, you know, take some psilocybin and uh, you're all good, right? There, it is, it is an adjunct to the actual treatment, which is the actual treatment with therapy, right? You're doing this with a trained provider. You're doing, I mean, in some of the sessions with these individuals, I'm, I'm collaborating with, it's eight hours long, one, one session, right? And they're there the whole time. Again, it's, it's a very highly monitored, secured situation. Um, so it's not the, the, the reason why the research is showing at least that um, these outcomes, these clinical outcomes have been so remarkable is because these um, psychedelic psilocybin uh, allow someone basically target that emotional part of the brain. When we have trauma, a lot of that gets damaged and shut down basically is the best way to put it. And so in trauma-focused treatment, non-psychedelic-assisted trauma-focused treatment, there's some individuals who have a hard time with it because they basically just can't break through that point because either the PTSD is so significant, um, maybe that part of the brain is a little bit more impacted, but that's why maybe they can't see the improvements, you know, that some people can with with these therapies. So with the psychedelic-assisted therapies, but something like psilocybin is it really targets that part of the brain. So it basically um, lesses the uh, inhibition in that emotional part of the brain so that then they can start to actually process. Um, I think about it as like a, like just a giant ball, you know, that's interlaced with a bunch of stuff, you know, dirt, weeds, all this, and we have to start breaking that apart. And so that's kind of what the 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 psych psychedelics can do is to kind of help someone access that part of the brain while they're doing the therapy. It's still the therapy that is doing the work. It's just the psychedelic can assist that and allow that to happen. So we discussed trauma in the first conversation, but um, you know, as we we before we hit record, you talked about kind of really laying out not only the psychological element of trauma, but the physiological, neurophysiological elements. So I'll kind of give you the mic again. We talked about, you know, the trauma being locked away. Talk to me about trauma and its impact impact not only on on the mind, but the physiological brain. Yeah, absolutely. So I really like to stress to all my first responders is that there's this very, as you're aware of, we talked about it last time around, this stigma surrounding mental health, stigma surrounding being impact by the impacted by the job, you know, trauma and stress, and that it's it's like something, a matter of willpower, right? And if you're just strong enough, you know, you can just trudge right through it. That's not the way it works. Individuals who are, are chronically exposed to trauma and stress, there's an actual physical impact on our brain. And I think it's really hard for us to really accept that because we can't see it, Right. We can't see our brain on the outside. And so to us, it's just something made up. It's just this amorphous thing. But I really like to educate people on the different parts of the brain that stress and trauma impact. So first of all, when we think about a stress response, fight, flight, freeze, right? Have you heard about that? Yes. Yes. Have you heard about freeze before? Um, yes, yeah, fight, 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 flight, freeze, and flow. But um, the freeze is definitely the one that people forget. You know, fight or flight yeah. is still an actionable thing. I think freeze, from what a lot of people have told me, that's that's the the crippling depression. That's the maybe even the acceptance, and then the pre-suicide, which arguably might be flow, which is ironic. 
Yeah. So freeze is very, very um, oftentimes let, left out. And in military and first responder communities, I think a lot of times it's left out because it's very stigmatized and looked down upon. And I'll go into that a little bit more. But so when we think about the fight, flight, freeze response, right, we're in a, a stressful situation. It could be our fight, flight, freeze response can go on of co- off in life or death situations, right? And it can also go off and maybe there's not an actual threat to our life, but it's a stressful situation, right? Same process happens. Why do we have a fight, flight, fight, flight, freeze response? What is the purpose of that? Why are we evolutionar- evolutionarily wired with that? So self-preservation. Yeah, to survive. It is the most important thing that we are wired with. And we don't really need to be taught to run away from the saber-toothed tiger, right? Back in the day, you know, if or, or if I'm out in the middle of the street and a car turns and it's coming towards me at a high speed, I don't stand there and go, hmm, let me think this through. What should I do? I just move. My body goes, right? And my body's able to move like that because it immediately goes into that fight, flight, freeze response. So it releases cortisol. It, it has uh, an impact on our sympathetic nervous system, which is a system that basically helps us go, 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 right? Blood, uh, increased heart rate so that we can pump more blood into different parts faster or we can fight harder, right? That's that's what it does. Um, so we have that in place. And so every time that that's going off, it releases chemicals into our body and those don't just go nowhere, right? Constant exposure to cortisol, which is the stress uh, chemical, has a deleterious effect on us and our bodies over time. So that's just kind of the background into the beginning of the stress response. And so what happens when we go into that stress response is it's a part of our brain called the amygdala. Have you ever heard of that? I have because I had to do exercise physiology. I don't remember where it is or what it does, but the name rings a bell. (laughs) Yeah. So there's three main players when we're talking about trauma, stress, and the brain. It's the amygdala, the prefrontal cortex, and the hippocampus. Okay. So the amygdala has one job and one job only. It is actually one of the structures in our brain that has not evolved that much over the years. Okay. Because it has one job, survival. That is its one job. And so the amygdala gets activated when it perceives, and I'm going to use that word, perceives some kind of threat, okay? And so the amygdala is what sets off that fight, flight, freeze response. It goes, go, 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 all right? Obviously, the amygdala is very important. If we didn't have that, none of us would be here. Our species would have died off a long time ago, right? So Then we have the prefrontal cortex. Now, what the prefrontal cortex does is it's our, let's let's slow down and think about this. That's what the prefrontal cortex does, right? It controls emotion regulation, logical thinking, reasoning, all these things, okay? Its other job is to basically turn the amygdala off. So it goes, "Mm, okay, that situation's done with. You can go back to sleep now, right? We We don't really thank you but we don't need you anymore. Or it tells it, whoa, 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 whoa. This is not an actual, this is not a situation where we need the fight, flight, freeze response. We're good. This is, we're safe. This is okay, right? That's what the prefrontal cortex does. Then we have the hippocampus, okay? And the hippocampus is in the back of our brain. It's a little thing. And what that does is it's our memory center, okay? I like to think of the hippocampus like a giant filing cabinet, meticulously organized. Memories from childhood and, 
middle, you know, a teenage years and adulthood and what we know about this and what we think about ourselves and what we know about trust and what we know about love and what we know about safety, right? All these files organized. Okay. Now let's talk about chronic exposure to trauma, what the brain looks like with post-traumatic stress injury. So because the amygdala has arguably the most important job of any of other other structures in our brain, which is to keep us alive, when the amygdala is activated, it is the loudest structure in the brain. And because of that, it dims down other parts of the brain. So when our amygdala is going, we don't really think through things and think logically and think rationally, right? Because we're thinking survival mode. How do I get through this? And so with constant activation, okay, here's my stress response. Stress response is going, stress response is going, danger, danger, safety. I need to respond this way to it. The amygdala starts becoming overreactive. So we have an overreactive amygdala and then the prefrontal cortex. And again, there's brain scans that show all of this, just like you would see in an X-ray. What the prefrontal cortex does is it starts to decrease its neuronal branching. So it becomes underactivated. Uh-oh. So we have this one structure in the brain that's screaming all the time. And that turns off basically these other structures in the brain, including that one structure that is involved in our emotion regulation, logical reasoning, all those things, right? The one part of the brain that's built to turn off the amygdala, lights are off. The lights are dimmed. It's not doing that, right? And then when we talk about the hippocampus, what happens with trauma exposure is it actually shrinks the volume of the hippocampus structure. It becomes smaller. And the way I like to explain it with post-traumatic stress injury is that it's as if those very meticulously uh, organized filing cabinets just got thrown all over the place. And this is why with individuals with post-traumatic stress injury or or disorder, you'll notice that they will get triggered by things in a situation that maybe is safe, but it reminds them of their trauma. I use the example of a combat, you know, I've worked with many combat vets, you know, who had served in Iraq or Afghanistan, you know, they're living here in California and San Diego now, but if they smell some type of barbecue or burning, they immediately, their fight, flight, freeze response goes off because their brain, that hippocampus, there, it's hard for that brain to um, to pin past, present, future, right? I'm not back in Afghanistan right now. I'm here in San Diego in the year of 2023. So their brain immediately goes off and says, danger, 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 because that hippocampus isn't accurately able to place that memory, okay? So then we have a big issue, right? And so that's why we see with post-traumatic stress injury, we have the amygdala firing at all times. The amygdala is associated with basically being um, anger, uh, impulsivity, right? The prefrontal cortex is down. We can't think logically. So we see self-destructive behavior. We see impulsivity. We see anger. So we see things like substance abuse, um, reckless behaviors, all those things, right? And then memory problems. Um, I can't remember anything. I have concentration difficulties. Again, I have difficulty remembering something that happened to me, right? All these things. So this is what actually goes on with chronic trauma exposure. This is not a matter of willpower. It is not a matter of, I can just get over it. Just like we can do an x-ray and see, yes, you have a fracture in your elbow. That's what happens with the brain. There's, it's actually an injury to the brain over time because of the chronic exposure to trauma and stress. So it's really important for first responders. I think that's a, a, a very um, impactful 
way to approach it is to go about this is actually scientifically related. This is why on the outside, you see yourself or your friend or your husband or your wife that she's pissed off all the time and she has a short fuse and, you know, is isolating and maybe drinking more and maybe is disconnected more and can't stay focused. But there's actually impacts on the structures in the brain that are leading to those observational, that observational manifestation of those symptoms. Well, speaking of uh, physiology, one of the observations I've made, and we touched on it last time, is we have this, as you said, the survival element, you know, fight, flight, freeze. And it's interesting, I had a Julian Pinot on, who's a strength and conditioning coach, but he went, took this deep dive, his brother actually took his own life. Um, and it was the expression of mental release through physical exertion. And he was talking about, you know, the fight flight is, you know, the, the healthy response somewhat. I mean, you're either removing yourself from the danger, you're fighting the danger. Freeze is the deer in headlights, which is, you know, arguably kind of pre-suicide ideation. And then I've had this through storytelling of some people that lost someone to suicide flow. That acceptance of like, yeah, I am I'm gonna take my take my own life and I'm okay with it. And they're in reportedly a better place the days leading up to their suicide they seemed happier they seemed calm so it's kind of ironic that the term flow can be for you know human performance but also apply there as well but that miswiring is what i've talked about recently because again i get to hear all these 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 stories and that that sense of burdensome that we talked about before the outside person looking in and sadly there's a perfect example we had in florida probably since we spoke Two law enforcement officers took their own lives. They were a couple within a week of each other, and they had an infant between the two of them. So the outside healthy brain looking in going, how could they be so selfish? How could they be so cowardly? They left that child behind. But now I've learned, as you're talking about, that it is miswiring. It is, you know, the the chemistry within the brain is is wrong because only if there was a physiological imbalance would that create a reality in a parent's mind to go that five months old will be better off without me be better off without us whatever the sense so with that trauma you know biochemistry conversation talk to me about that distorted reality that a lot of people that take their own lives find themselves in yeah, it's a really important topic to cover because, again, these misconceptions really contribute to the stigma. And what stigma does is it prevents people from reaching out for help. So stigma, we lose lives due to stigma. I mean, that's the bottom line. Um, and I think we talked about this a little bit in our last episode, but this uh, factor of burdensomeness. So burdensomeness is... I'm just going to use my own anecdotal experience as a trauma psychologist. Um, I don't know if I've ever worked with someone who has attempted or seriously considered killing themselves that didn't say that they felt that they were a burden on others. I mean, it is what I see every single solitary time. Um, and there is a, uh, for those who listened to the our previous episode, a theory, and I won't go into detail about it this time, but it's called the interpersonal psychological theory of suicide. And it really taps into that factor of burdensomeness, which is that this misconception about suicide is it's selfish. They weren't thinking about anyone else. 
how selfish of them to do that. Um, in reality, I'll just say 99.99% of the individuals that I've worked with, um, they are thinking about other people, but unfortunately their thoughts aren't necessarily accurate, but they're thinking that they're a burden. They're thinking that this child, their partner, their kids, whoever it is, are going to be better off without them, that they are nothing but a burden, that they're toxic, that they don't bring anything to the table and that they just bring them down. And so they will be better off without me around. Um, and again, I think that it's so important to dispel that this is not an act of selfishness because then it's more likely that people who are struggling, who are thinking about taking their own life, will reach out to someone without fear of being judged. Hey, what do you mean? What? Dude, you have two kids. Like, why would you even think of doing that? That would be the worst possible way to respond to someone who who chooses to disclose to you that, you know, they're thinking about taking their own life, right? So it really dispels that misconception, which opens up um opportunities for individuals to reach out to people knowing that they won't be judged in that way because that is by no means what's going on. So you have a friend who's there. They're, you know, they're showing signs that they're actually thinking about taking their own lives. As short of an actual, you know, Baker Act, um, you know, 72-hour hold when you're absolutely in crisis and that they're standing holding the gun, Prior to that, someone comes to you, they, they they confide in you. What is your advice to that responder, dispatcher, whoever it is? Because I think a lot of us feel so lost. It's such an a, a uncomfortable conversation for a lot of us, and we want to help. We just don't know how to help. Yeah, that's a great question. It's one I get a lot. So number one, someone discloses to you that they're thinking about taking their own life or thinking about killing themselves. Don't freak out, Okay just actual physical observations, right? Of Oh, wow. Oh, no. Okay. Okay. Let's talk about this. What do we do? Right? Stay calm. Don't freak out. Thank them for sharing that with you. Show gratitude that they're sharing that with you. You want to, these people typically aren't looking for advice unless they specifically say, please give me advice. A lot of times they just want someone to listen. Thank them for sharing that with you. Thank them for trusting you. Listen to them. Tell them you care. Let them know that you're there. Let them know that you don't have the answers, but you're going to help them in any way that they need, that you're there to support, right? A lot of first responders, because first responders are helpers. They like to problem solve, right? The idea is, I'm scared to reach out to my friend who seems like they're not doing well because, you know, I don't know what to do. So what if I reach out to them and I don't have an answer? That's okay. You don't need to have the answer. What that person needs is to know that you care and that you're there to listen, and that you're there to support. You, what you also want to avoid doing um, uh, is, of course, you want to avoid minimizing their feelings, but you really want to avoid trying to convince them that their life is worth living, right? They're not looking for you to say, wait, what are you talking about? No, people love you. No, 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 no. Come on. Think about your kids. Think about this. You have so much going for you, right? If someone's having a heart attack, in the middle of their heart attack, you're not saying, Think about all the things, you know, you could have been eating. Maybe you should have eaten a little better. Think about all these other things, right? We don't want to do that, right? We just want to be there and listen. So we're not there to provide advice. We're not there to convince them not to do this. We're just there to tell them that we're, we support them. We care about them and we're going to do whatever we can to help them. That's really all that's needed. 
and it's very impactful. Now, from you know your perspective, your eye, someone is struggling. You've had this conversation with with them. What are the best resources that you found? I've heard a whole spectrum from a friend of mine who was basically seconds from taking his own life. He ended up becoming an adv- advocate and created an app called Redline Rescue, which connects peer support, you know, competent counselor, uh, excuse me, comp- culturally competent counselors. Um, and then the other side of the spectrum, you have the EAP Russian roulette, which I've heard horror stories from. Um, what are some of the best resources that you've come across for that responder who's now spoken to their friend to take the next step to getting them help? That's a really great question. Honestly, it really depends on also where this individual is located. So some of the work I do is I create basically resource manuals for agencies so that they have there's nationally based, but also locally based competent providers, locally based nonprofits or programs that maybe have those hotlines. Um, obviously, there's always the 988 and people don't know, too, that you can text the 988 line as well if you're feeling that way. But um, I think the first big step is to reach out to someone you trust, right? And then go from there. There could be, depending on the severity of someone's suicidality, right? I mean, there's a big range to it, but starting to get the ball rolling, there's nonprofits, um, so many nonprofits that are nationwide and and state-based that um, people can reach out to. Some of them have 24-7 lines, but also some of them have programs that someone can get into, Um, there's culturally competent providers. There's also obviously the EAP, depending on how that works. You know, we hear a lot of the bad stories from the EAP. There's people who utilize EAP. You just don't hear about them that it worked out well for them. So I would really say that, um, looking into the, um, national and local nonprofits, first responder support networks, things like that. Um, you know, there's some specifically for the, the wildland firefighter foundation, um, there's some for law enforcement, uh, but there's a lot of different avenues outside of just finding a provider that have options. Um, again, and it really depends on where someone is with that. I mean, if someone is imminently in danger of of killing themselves, you know, it might not be the time to start, you know, okay, let, let's see, maybe I can get some in somewhere in the next three weeks or so, you know. Yeah, that was the, the crazy thing I heard. I know we talked about your time in the VA, but I've had a lot more conversations since and the number of people that were very close to crisis or in crisis and the the first available mental health appointment was months away. Yeah. Uh, talk about moral injury. I mean, um, you know, healthcare workers, doctors, psychologists, it's something that um, we experience too, especially if you're working in a, in a hospital system. There's a lot of that that goes on, but I have I have experienced moral injury and that guilt and that just that that pain, you know, working at a VA where I was working in the PTSD clinic. So we're, you know, only allowed to see people who meet criteria for PTSD, which already was, um, you know, uh, kind of against my own functioning. Because, you know, a lot of people with any type of trauma exposure can benefit from these treatments, but also, you know, having someone be like, okay, yeah, this person really needs help. And then I have to tell them, sorry, you know, there's a three to four month wait for treatment. Um, and it's, it is really tough, um, to deal with that. Uh, and it's, it's unfortunate that, um, that, that is, that is the case. Yeah. Now we got a lot, a lot of work to do. And this is the thing, even locally, 
Like I know one of my guests now, she is back in town, so she's receiving patients. I don't know, we'll get to your your center and you're doing the same, but it's still so siloed. You know, we should be able to say, well, what's the resource? Well, there's the go-to place and they have, you know, local departments and everyone's covered, but it's not. It's still all these great people with their own facilities and all these great people like Nexrung and, and Dustin with Redline Rescue trying to make a difference, but there is no kind of national network. You know, as you said, even with the psychedelics, there should be a governing body and it should be easy to say, okay, this is these are the parameters, this is the license you got to have done. And when these responders or these military members or civilians go, when the stamp is on there, we know you're good to go. Let's move this thing yeah. forward. But, you know, again, it's just, it's the siloed, fragmented first yeah. responder professions that have created so many barriers to entry to a fluid system where someone needs help and they get help. Oh, 100%. Uh, it is very, very siloed. And yeah, as someone who who does this work, um, like I said, when I create, you know, resources and resource manuals for agencies, one of the reasons they hired me on to do that is because I do the back end work of like, okay, I have to put those pieces together. Like how it what can I put together for this agency that's local, locally based, where they there's a comprehensive list of resources for the personnel that have differing levels of needs, right? There's some people who are not doing well at all. There's some who are trying to be proactive. There's some in between. And what are the who are the competent providers in the area? What are the local um, options, volunteer options, nonprofit options, businesses, et cetera, that can provide people. It takes me a lot of time to do that because this is my job. This is my business. And, and it's few and far between, you know, like you said, there's no streamlined, uh, there's no streamlined, uh, um, list of individuals and agencies that can, that can, you know, all tie together and be like, this is, this is step one, two, and three. Here's, here's what you need to do. Right. Well, another thing that's come up recently is I've had a quite a few people on the show who went to someone because on their website, it said they work with first responders. Yeah. And these are basically mental health practitioners that have a list of everything, children, PTSD, mental health, uh, I mean, excuse me, first responders, military. So talk to me about that. I mean, that's your profession. What are you seeing through that lens? Oh, how much time you got? Um All the time in the world. <laughs> You know, I I tread very lightly uh, talking about this subject because I, you know, I never want to come off as, um, you know, uh, superior in any way. However, I do think it's really important um, to educate first responders on what to look out for and who to look out for. You know, what does it mean? There's so many different credentials, right? And different titles of people. And it's like, here's what this means. This is this is what it means that they went to school for X, Y, Z. Um, I have seen a very disturbing number of individuals who have no formal training um, in mental health advertising that they can resolve your PTSD and that they can do this. I've seen people who have formal training in mental health who say, yeah, sure, I can work with a first responder. Yeah, I have experience doing that, but they actually have no training or experience to do it. And I think it, like, in my eyes, it comes from two areas. In the first responder culture, it's very, as you know, it's very much 
like a first responder needs to know that you, you can be trusted, that you actually understand the culture. So there's a big pull, I think, to go more towards people who say that they are or were a first responder because they're like, okay, they'll be able to help me with, let's say again, my alcohol use problem or my post-traumatic stress disorder, right? Because they, they've done it. But if that individual has actually, even though they have the, let's just call it lived experience, lived experience on its own is not enough to address actual um, serious, clinically significant mental health issues. Can it be enough to provide peer support? Absolutely. And, you know, to be able to provide just kind of the entry level of, you know, let me help you with this. Here's some symptoms. Here's some options maybe for you. Absolutely. But it, it, treating something like PTSD is not just, let's just talk about this. There's very evidence-based ways that you need to get trained to treat these things. Just like anything else, uh, you know, people specialize in treating psychotic disorders. Someone comes to me that has any type of psychosis, I refer them out immediately. I, I wouldn't know the first thing to do. Eating disorders, that's a very niche thing too. I don't know how to treat eating disorders. Do I know enough about them because I'm in the field? Sure, but I don't feel competent in treating them. So I see a lot of individuals who have the experience in the first responder world advertising that they can treat something that someone really needs actual for, like someone needs help, formal training to help them with. And then I see the other way where you have formal, you know, mental health training, but they don't actually understand the culture and what goes into that. And then they advertise that they do. And then a first responder goes to them. And in the first, second session, they have the provider crying. I can't tell you how many first responders I've worked with where they're like, um, my first experience I had going to a therapist, uh, they were crying. You know, um, <laughs> and like, but they advertise that they did that. So it's, it's a big, big, big issue. Um, I think that individuals are not um, accurately advertising what they can provide and how competent they are in providing those things. And I'll, I'll, I won't necessarily put it all to maliciousness, um, but I think in some ways, maybe it's just they, they think or they misunderstand or they think that they can do it. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's not enough. Well, what really haunts me is I've had people on the show whose counselor burst into tears. I've had people on the show who were told to leave because the counselor said, I can't help you. Now those people were alive to tell those stories, but how many people have walked into a counselor, psychologist, psychiatrist's office and this was their last ditch attempt and they mustered up the courage to actually seek help and that person burst into tears or told them to get out and that was the final straw and we'll never get oh. to hear their story oh it's in i mean extremely dangerous and damaging extremely dangerous and damaging and that's what really i mean, i can tell you i i sign on to linkedin often and there's a lot of days where i'm like i see someone advertising that they do something that i'm like you know, like, let me like, what, what experience do you have in this? What training do you have in this? You need to have both experience alone is not enough training. Being a mental health provider is not enough in the first spawner world. You need to have both. And for a competent provider, you don't need to be, to be a culturally competent provider doesn't mean you have to have been a first responder, but you need to have had training and experience, significant training and experience working with them. 
right? Not maybe you saw one client in your past five years that was a cop for five years and you're like, yeah, 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 I know how to work with first responders, but you've been on the research side, on the clinical side, you worked, you were embedded in a department, you worked, you, you've done ride-alongs, you've been on scene, you've gone to, you've gone to line of duty death funerals, you've gone to graduation ceremony, you've done all of that, you're immersed in the culture. That's what it means to be a culturally competent psychologist. Um, And so, yeah, it's, it's, extremely i cannot uh <laughs> overstate um the frustration that i experience when i i think it's very very prevalent um that i see that and uh and the reason it's so frustrating to me is because i know how dangerous it is and how damaging it is and i wish that um i try and get the word out like when i work with agencies I'll create manuals and tell them what to look out for. You know, here's what these credentials mean. Here's, you know, the questions you should ask someone if they're saying that they have experience working with first responders. But I really try and get the word out because it is it is a dangerous and damaging thing to do is to falsely advertise what what you're competent in doing. Well, I want to get to your center. But just before we do, one thing that seems apparent because, you know, of the prereqs that you've just listed, there seem, we seem to be woefully inadequate as far as the amount of people that would be a valuable resource just aren't enough culturally competent clinicians out there for the number of responders how do we improve that how do we increase the number of people that are going either from first responder to mental health or mental health to including responders so that we can you know hopefully one day have enough people in everyone's community to be able to serve the responders that are that are working there I think there's a couple different answers to this, um, and it's on differing levels. You can talk about um, there's a couple more programs like like I have a, a PhD, right? I my training experience comes from because I got my PhD and and all my training, you know, eight years of training working in a program where I worked specifically with the agencies, you know, the first responder agencies, I got all my training through that all my, you know, I started doing research. And so um, you can talk about it from that. end. if we're talking about um, programs, actually implementing uh, funding and or uh, making connections with agencies to allow their trainees to start to in, during their training, have supervised training working with first responders, right? That's that's one way to go about it. And I know that there's a couple more, just a couple more, not a ton, but I do know since my time um, getting my PhD, there are a couple more institutions and programs now that have made, uh, you know, that now collaborate with a local, you know, fire department or um, police department where their trainees are now working directly with the first responders. Um, so that's one way to do it, right? You get it to me, that's that's a really that's a, a a really good way to do it because you're that's all your training is immersed in that. There's also possibility of um, like non funding going to nonprofit agencies, you know, first responder oriented nonprofit agencies um, that then use that funding to train um, already licensed providers, right, in how to be culturally competent providers, right. So individuals who want to work with first responders, the ethical thing that you're supposed to do as a provider is if you're not competent in something, then if there's organizations 
Like say I want to do EMDR training. I okay, I don't know how to do EMDR. There are giant organizations, you know, the EMDR International Association where you can go to and you can find these, you know, all these trainings that they offer throughout the year, the calendar and go through an intensive 4-month training to learn how to do that. We need that for first responders as well, right? Okay, I want to go through a program where I can be trained and learn how to be a culturally competent mental health provider. I think that's another important way that that could be tackled um, as well. To me, those would be the two top things that come into my brain. There's also, um, and this would take more ethical obligation and proactivity on the side of a provider, but say a provider wants to start seeing first responders, but they're like, okay, I'm not comfortable necessarily. I don't think I'm competent enough yet to maybe start seeing them in my practice. So they start reaching out to local departments and say, Hey, can I do some ride alongs? You know, this is who I am. You know, I really want to be a provider in the area. And I just want to learn more about your culture and kind of, you know, uh, start to get to know what's going on more. That's, that's another way potentially to do it. But obviously I think that way would be just take a lot more effort on the, on the providers end. Well, thank you for that. I mean, I think this, it's just so needed and because it's so siloed. I mean, I've worked for places where the city and the county don't talk to each other or FD and PD don't talk to each other. And it's it's pathetic. It's all egos, but it's created, yeah. like I said, this kind of egg carton where everyone's reinventing the real in their own little, you know, divot rather than there being a national conversation. And we have unions and we have some other organizations, chiefs associations, but in my experience working for four fire departments, so I got a little bit more of a gypsy's lens on this whole thing. The communication is is woefully inadequate, you know, and there's yeah. people with great, great intentions trying to start from the beginning. And it's so much wasted energy because if they if there was this kind of national um connection interconnection of all these departments, they could all knowledge share, take the best things, create these, you know, these courses to create as you said a culturally competent clinician through a regular mental health practitioner or have lots of people on the show that are retiring out of the the first responder profession they want to get into the mental health side but then getting them all in the same channels so again they're not just fumbling around going well how do i make a mental health program for my department or how do i find the right counselor to actually hire for my department but it just be a you know, a, a conversation that's already been had because it, it has. It's just trying to connect those people so they can all find the same information. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I've actually come across a lot this year, a lot more I'm, I'm seeing of first responders, like active duty first responders that are uh, going to school, you know, to to become some type of, of counselor or some type of clinician, which is which is really awesome to see. Um and at the same time, you know, it's, I, I just feel like they're, when I've talked to them, I, I, a lot of them are like, something's got to be done, you know, like we don't have anything. So we figure we'll, we'll go do it ourselves. Right. Which is great to do. And it's sad that that's kind of the option is like, well, I guess we'll be the ones to go do this and go to the schooling. And, and so that we can help because there's not enough culturally competent people out there. Yeah, it's kind of like the COVID thing in England, you know, we'll just, uh, we'll just stand outside and clap and you guys figure it out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, your organization now is called the Center for Trauma, Anxiety and Stress. Before we even get into your work, from a business point of view, did that create trauma, anxiety and stress for you? Oh. 
(laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ongoing trauma, anxiety and stress. You know, Um, they always say back, you know, research is me search, you know. So, yeah, definitely trauma, anxiety and stress on the on the business side of things. So what have been the challenges? Because I, the one thing I can't stand about the podcast is the business side. I have to pay my mortgage. I have to feed my children. So there needs to be a sponsorship element. And ironically, as we're talking, I'm basically almost zero sponsors. It's a roller coaster ride from, from great to terrible. And depending on, you know, who, who at that moment is wanting to, to market. Um, but it's, it's such a stifle to the creativity side when you've got to worry about the business, but this is the reality. In the CrossFit space, for example, I've had numerous conversations of gyms that have failed because someone's a phenomenal coach but a terrible business person. And, you know, it's very, very hard to juggle. So what have been some of the challenges for you going out on your own? All right. Let me see. Sifting through where to start here. Uh, <laughs> um I, okay, I'll start here because this one, like, it kind of just weighs more on my conscience. But you were just saying, you know, this is also a business, right? It's my, it's my livelihood, and I think that um, two things can be true at once. So, one, I am extremely passionate about what I do, like extremely passionate. It fuels me. It brings me fulfillment. You know, sitting here, for example, looking at what's happening in Maui. I just want to be there on, on the ground and, and helping, you know, it's, it's extremely something I'm extremely passionate about. And, you know, I spent 15 years in school and training to become, you know, a a licensed clinical psychologist, about 13 years, right. It's, it's a, it's a long time. I didn't, I didn't take a three month online class and get a certificate, right? <laughs> like it's, it's a long time. Um, and during those 13 years, I was working 80 hours a week. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't making money. You don't get paid by the way. Um, so living off of $15,000 a year, that's one five. Um, so needless to say, you got to take loans. You can, you can't afford food, all these things. Right. And so I think one of the biggest struggles I've come across is this balance between, particularly in the first responder culture, where in the first responder culture, you know, it takes a little bit more to get trust. And a lot of first responders, rightfully so, are a little bit um, worried that people are just in it for the money. Um, This goes along kind of with what we were talking about before, which is also what frustrates me about some people that I see where I'm like, you know, I was like selling snake oil, you know, and, and trying to make a buck. So one of the biggest things I've come across or struggles is, earning that trust and, and not feeling bad. Like sometimes I'll feel guilty for making money off of what I do. And then I have to remind myself that I, I love what I do and I'm passionate about it. And, you know, I worked really hard to become this specialized. I worked really hard to, to, to become this licensed clinical psychologist who specializes in first working with responders. And this is, this is my business. So yes, I, I, I do make money off of what I do and, and I do, I do want to be successful. I, I'm not going to hide that I want to make good money and and grow, become a bigger business and be successful. And at the same time, I think that the work I do, you know, I think I, I help people. I, I'm trained. I'm competent. I help people. I help agencies. And I'm really passionate about that. So I think that's one of the biggest challenges that I've, I've struggled with. Um, I'd say personally is, you know, how do, how do I best get that, message across you know it's 
such a kind of vicious circle because it's the same with me. Like I have done this for free for a long time. Right now, there's you know there's one sponsor once a week, so basically almost nothing. And again, I'm back to doing it for free, so I will do it regardless. But like you said, there is a livelihood to be made. I gave up you know a firefighter salary and benefits and pension and all that stuff to do this. But it's, I think, when you're truly altruistic and you want to help people, the I need to make money side is such a struggle. But, you know, as people have said to me before, it's like, well, people make money on things that kill people and they have no issue with it. You're just trying to support your family on yeah. something that's making a difference. But it is it is a, a dichotomy. It's a struggle between I should be doing everything for free always, which I am. I mean, everyone listens to the show, gets it for free, which is exactly how I have it set up. There's no Patreon. There's nothing. But, you know, the the sponsors who are also products that I adore – they're, you know, wanting to reach the audience. And I think that the people listening need to use their stuff. So it there's no real downside. But again, I think when you've really got that service burning in your heart, it's still a struggle, even though people make billions on cigarettes and, <laughs> and are able to sleep at night. Yeah, it's funny. My a friend of mine said almost exactly what, what you were saying there, kind of like, there's a lot of people who make a lot of money that don't think twice about it. Like it doesn't bother, you know, make money off of other people that are struggling or whatever you want to call it, selling something that to tell people that you're helping them and they sleep just fine at night. Right. And so, you know, it's, it's a normal thing to have that, that kind of struggle when you, like you're saying you're altruistic and you want to help people. And, you know, I, and I always say like in my head, I think about this too. It's funny in the mental, I think it's a little bit different in the mental health arena, this expectation of like, oh, well, you know, wow, they're charging that rate. Like, oh my gosh, they're just out for money, right? Um, Like an orthopedic surgeon. I don't think anyone's really like, wow, that orthopedic surgeon charges that rate and they make money. How dare they? Like they, I thought, I thought they really want to help people. Why don't they just work, you know, charge a hundred bucks for a, a, you know, a full spinal reconstructive surgery, you know, um, but for some reason, in the mental health field, it's, it's very different. And um, I also think that goes into a, a, a difference between the mental health field and the medical field is that in the medical field, typically, you know, you have an MD, like a doctor, medical doctor, you have nurses, RNs, um, there's, of course, um, um, I'm going blank, like physicians assistants and, and whatnot. But t- there's, there's, like a very known difference between an RN and a and an MD, right? And in the mental health field, you have LCSWs, uh, LCCPs, CIDs, PhDs, MDs, and all these different things. And they all take different levels of training, degrees, and schooling. And so I think that, you know, there's people who look side by side at two people and see like, we're talking about therapy, like an hourly rate of this and this, but one person might have been to 12 years of school, whereas another person might have been to two or three years of school, and they might be a wonderful clinician too. However, there is a difference in charge based on the amount of training and experience someone has, right? Um, and so I think that that kind of gets lost in the web too, because um, in the mental health field, anyone with any type of degree can open up a practice and practice. Um, so there's no like really differentiation. And even so, and another big thing, which I'm hoping, I'm thinking that is going to change after more lawsuits come out, because I know they're already coming out, is that there's a lot of people who advertise themselves as like a mental health coach. 
Um, and coaching, there's no regulatory board um, regulating them. There's no law. There's no ethics. You don't have to have any background or training or anything. And they can run, you know, something that they say, yeah, I provide mental health services and I'm and I'm a coach. And there's no regulation on that either. So I think that it's easy for people to just kind of look side by side and being like, oh, that person is, is charging this or that. Um, but there's a lot of different aspects that go into that too. I always question the term life coach because I'm pretty sure all of us have only had one. <laughs> so I don't know how you, I mean, there's there's other descriptions, you know, you've been through trauma, you've got lived experience, whatever, but the term life coach, like if you're, if you're, you know, a Hindu that's been reincarnated a thousand times and you can tell me this is how you end up being, you know, a, a an eagle, not a dung beetle, knock yourself out. <laughs> yeah. But for the rest of us, I really struggle with that. There's some, you know, there's all these different titles, but the term life coach I really struggle with because how the fuck are you any better than most of us? You just lived one as well. I feel the, the same way, James. Uh, <laughs> I uh, I get, my, my feathers get rustled, ruffled a little bit sometimes when I see that stuff. So uh, yeah, I'm with you there. Well, just kind of tangenting for a second because you're a great person to ask this. Speaking of, ironically, of, of kind of a, eastern um wisdom joe rogan had a guy said guru who um is a very interesting kind of um uh eastern holy man and he said something on joe's show that basically and, and joe was like, talking about you know pharmaceutical companies or whatever and you know about being evil and he just kind of came back with like well they're also hurting and i was like i've never thought about it that way there's the there's a new show on netflix about the oxycontin crisis i think dope sick has been you know, it's an amazing storytelling if you want to look into that. But you are the CEO of a cigarette company, of a, an opioid company, of, you know, McDonald's, whatever. And you fucking know in your heart of hearts that your product is killing hundreds of thousands of people around the world. And you still sleep at night or you're a fire chief and you've had multiple suicides and you shrug your fucking shoulders and go, well, you know, I don't know what to do. And you just fucking keep doing the same thing. Me personally, I would argue that that's also a mental health issue in that end as well. What is your perspective of that? Oh, well, I mean, you you talk about, I'm not necessarily saying the fire chief, but a lot of people at the top of the ring, you know, like a pharmaceutical company, um, there's a lot of uh, traits of sociopathy, like actual sociopaths, right? Um that don't necessarily feel the same way that you and I do. Their brains are actually different. Um, and I'd have to imagine that that um, is more prevalent. I mean, there is research that's showing people like, you know, high, high, high up in the rankings of giant businesses or um, on Wall Street, all that stuff that there's more sociopathic tendencies and traits among those individuals. So, um, in that way, I think it's hard. It's comparing apples to oranges because their brain quite literally doesn't work the same way as as ours does. For the individuals who do, who who aren't sociopaths, whose brains are the structures in their brains are functioning similarly to ours. I don't know. You can call it. Um, there's either a ton of distress and issues that they deal with because they know that what they're doing is wrong, like cognitive dissonance, right? So cognitive dissonance is, you know, when you have a certain belief or moral or whatever it is, and you're basically your actions don't match up with that. Um, so either they just 
struggle all the time and you know they're they're wallowing down in their in their struggle hole while still continuing to do it knowing that it's against their morals or they find a way to make it okay to them right like they okay well you know um I put food on the table for my family. My family's number one, or along with that, I have so many employees that can put food on their table because, because of that. Right. So it's kind of making, making a way to make it seem better so that it doesn't cause that level of distress. I think those are the only two options um, or three options, either sociopath, someone is just significantly impacted by it and they just lead a very, very uh, troubled, distressed life, or they find a way to, um, you know, turn it around a little bit yeah i think that that you know this is james gearing's opinion but you take the last two people that have sat in the white house and that spans both sides of the aisle it's the same thing it's this narcissism is this deliberate division of a nation and when we look at these human beings that go through this freaking turd factory of a process that we have at the moment you you're always going to get these self-serving divisive people that are going to make our country worse and worse and worse and the moment that we actually understand that we need a normal human being the a room full of normal human beings to fight vie for these positions and whoever we get whatever color tie there is the other side is going to go yeah they're pretty good though wasn't who i wanted but they're still pretty good and they brought us together and we're moving forward the fact that we have people ready to die you know fighting over these sociopaths that we seem to get at the moment that simply divide us this if we can just finally take a step back and go our system is so broken we need to stop letting this kind of person get into office and actually get good leaders that will unify us that will help us rebuild that will help the health of our nation that help the education all these things i think that you know there's a there's a strong application of the fact that we have a mental health crisis in our, and I'm using this term very loosely, leadership, and we need to actually reframe how we choose these people so that we can build community again. Because if it carries on down this road, people are getting more and more siloed and turned against each other. And, you know, I hate to say it, but a lot of the world is kind of pointing at us and wringing their hands and some of the more devious ones are going, oh, sweet, they're getting weaker and weaker, which is terrifying to me. Yeah, I think that, unfortunately, like you're saying, I think that the way that the reason that there's you know, sociopaths like that at the highest levels, whether we're talking, there's a lot of systems that, that, um, that that's the case. I think that's a feature, not a bug. Um, meaning that I think the system is built to support that, unfortunately. Um, and, uh, I think there's a, a, a lot of people that fell out of the system long before they made it that high up because, they weren't necessarily a sociopath or maybe they had had actually something to offer um, in a way that wouldn't be corrupt or manipulative or psychopathic in any way. Um, and so, you know, we don't, we as uh, citizens, we don't, we don't really see those people. I guess by the time, you know, the people we see have made it far enough up the ladder. I mean, I even saw it in, um, so originally, you know, I, I have a very heavy research background. I was very heavily in academia and I was pretty dead set on staying. And uh, that's what I thought I was going to do as an academia. And as the years went on, um, you know, this is my experience. Uh, and and there are, of course, exceptions. I know some really wonderful people in academia. But in many, uh, many institutions, um, the system in academia is really set up to let 
um, maybe not the most uh, um, caring and um, morally uh, people with moral foundations uh, rise to the top. Um, there, I saw a lot of exploitation. I was exploited, right, and throughout my um, graduate school um, time, and and I just really did not like what I was seeing. And I was like, for me, the kind of person I am, I'm like, I wouldn't be able to just say, okay, well, I enjoy doing this, so I'm just going to keep my head down and keep working through and do it. Like, I, I just can't, I can't do that. I like it took away any any interest and joy I had in it because I was like, this, I don't like the way this is is set up. So, and I know a lot of other people who were really fantastic, you know, researchers in their graduate career and whatnot, or maybe in, in their early, early career that, um, didn't stay in it because, because of that as well, you know, it really takes a certain kind of person. And again, there's many, many amazing researchers that are good people. Um, but there's certain, certain institutions and certain systems that, um, kind of really prop up maybe people who, aren't really looking, which is ironic in the mental health field, because you would think, okay, these people have made it this far. They, they're probably really good with other people and care about them, but um, it's not, it's not always the case. So. <laughs> well, I think as well, this conversation is addressing the cause of organizational betrayal, organizational stress too. I've had lots of people on the show who, funny enough, are kind of revered by the rest of the country as a firefighter, as a paramedic, as, as a police officer, but the profit's not received in their own land and their own agency doesn't like them because there's this voice. So by having good leadership in a first responder profession, in you know a government, whatever it is, and you're doing the right thing, you're removing so much undue stress of these people that just want to make the world a little better in their community, in their school, whatever it is. But they're so fucking tired from swimming upstream against the current because certain people in certain positions are creating barriers rather than solutions. Oh, a hundred percent. That's something I run into talk about, you know, things that have been difficult in my business too. I mean, I, it's never, it's not going to get easier. Um, is, you know, I'll get brought out to an agency to do a training or a presentation or something. Right. Um, and at some agencies, you know, I'll have some of the personnel come to me afterwards, you know, privately and, and like, you know, be really thankful, you know, that really helped, you know, that opened my eyes to certain things. Um, but like, what do I do about X, Y, Z? Because, you know, we don't have the option for this or, and so it's, it's really difficult for me. I always feel like I, in some, sometimes hit a wall because I can provide certain tips, uh, on, you know, how to better go about, um, managing sleep on shift or these things. But if there's an agency that's just you know, checking off boxes and aren't, aren't actually fully invested in the overall wellness of their employees. Like I can only do so much. So I, I, I feel this almost like tug of like, call it moral injury, whatever you want. But I feel this like really heavy heaviness inside of me of like, there's, there's nothing else I can, I can do. I can provide you with this information, but unfortunately I don't have you know, I, I'm not a part of the leadership structure. I can't change the way they uh, approach this or or how they treat you or all these different things and what they prioritize. And so it causes a big, a lot of discord inside of me. Um, and I, I don't think that that's going to go away. Um, fortunately, there's, I work with a lot of wonderful agencies that are, are really, truly passionate about and, and focused on wellness. Um, but, you know, there's, there's some that aren't and, and I'm, I'm almost just kind of brought in to, 
check a box off and I, ugh, I hate that feeling. I really hate it. Cause then I just feel like I'm that I represent that, you know? So I, I hate it. Yeah. I've worked for the place just like that. The last one. So, you know, and again, there's some good people in there really want to make a difference, but they, you know, the organization actually even higher than that, the theme park that you're working for when you work for this agency, they've had people from other fire departments come in as a chief and they've barely lasted a year because they're like, oh, no, 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 we don't actually want to change, you know, and they just go back to the puppet that they have. And, you know, we don't want to see you just, you know, they used to be back in the day, you have a heart attack in the park, you had to be dragged off backstage before you were even allowed to start CPR. That's the kind of distorted power. And again, sociopath elements, like someone is fucking dying and you're more concerned about optics and pixie dust than saving this human life how did you go so far from reality but this is this is what you're dealing with so you get great firefighters going to that department and then five years in they're just they've given up they're just shells of who they could be and it should be and again this isn't talking crap it's just this is my sacrificial lamb of worst case scenario lots of money no leadership you know and then you know i i shudder to think one day if something happens there and this is blown wide open because you know people have been talking about it for a long time and you know it was preventable but but anyway the point of the wrong people and leadership positions the immense amount of trauma physically and mentally that that can cause just by not addressing you know that individual's mental health as well so i think it goes we, we think about mental health in the fire service as us the firefighters are paramedics but if you've got a city or council county that doesn't mind that working there men and women literally to death and they go to sleep at night well you know we're talking about mental health on that side too oh absolutely i mean throughout some of my training you know i mean just in general in the um you know when when you're getting a doctorate like i said you're working typically more than full time um and you're you're not making money maybe five to ten dollars an hour if you did the math um and uh you become overworked and and that has an impact on the quality of services you're providing to other people. I mean, how, how are you supposed to, I mean, talk about your passion goes away, right? I mean, you're just trying to survive and you're, uh, you know, malnutritioned, you're not sleeping, and then you're expected to be uh, functioning at 110%, you know, to provide people with these services. And so that's all also like a system that I, I just, it's just so broken. Um, Cause not only like, and I think about it in the first spawner world, like certain agencies, like not only, is it harming the, you know, the health and wellness of the, the personnel, but then that also has an impact in how you're able to actually do the job and help the people in your county or in your city. Right. Um, because if you're not, if your personnel are all functioning, you know, below optimal level or significantly below optimal level, then it's going to impact, um, the services they, they provide. And you, you talk about this, like you and I have talked about this before. I, include your a quote from your book and a lot of, you know, in some of my presentations and really go after this idea of like, we got to change this mindset of like, okay, this is just so that, you know, to make my personnel happy to bring this person in, you know, and then they can just get some facts and then we go on and we go with status quo. Like this has to be a full organizational um, priority, right? It has to be addressed in so many different ways. Wellness, you know, like mental what uh wellness physical wellness nutrition sleep all these different things in order to optimize personnel's 
overall wellness. So I, I just, it's such a, a, a difficult task to kind of get that point across is that the less you do for the personnel, then the more work and time and money it is typically for your agency. Cause you have more, um, um, line of duty injuries, potentially more line of duty deaths, mistakes, paperwork, medical leave, all those things that's all related to it. So it's a tough, it's a tough message to get across. It's it's a false economy. And that's what blows me away is that, you know, people will want to look good in a budget year, but they're actually draining money from a city or a county. But if you just had that courageous leadership to say, you know, we're going to invest. I mean, the corporate world, I think since we spoke last, there's been a lot of articles how, you know, the bigger corporations, the more progressive corporations have tried the four-day work week. That's still four, eight-hour days, nine-hour days, not adding, you know, 12s. And they realized that they were getting the same, if not more, done because these people found, you know, very innovative. They found more ways to be efficient. They got the same amount of work done. And then they got a three-day, you know, period with their family, came back much more refreshed. And so... Sometimes a fire service refers to itself as a business. I'm like, okay, well then don't model a fucking Indonesian sweatshop, model Google or Virgin. Be progressive if you're going to model it. So I always talk about the 2472. You you invest in that extra shift. As you said, you would actually save money hand over fist longitudinally. But you've got to have the courage to seem like the bad guy in that one or, or bad girl in that one budget year but you'll be the hero 10 years from now when they realize the savings that you've made. Yeah. Oh yeah. That takes a lot of courage to do though, as you know, you know, especially in the first responder world, you know, things, things have been, things have always been done this way. Right. I mean, that's a lot of the, uh, the messaging that gets across. So I agree. I mean, it's, it's something, I think it's going to take a long time to get to the point. Hope, hopefully it gets to the point where more of that is happening. I mean, that's, that's a much, those are much bigger um, changes, but I think at least there's so much more emphasis right now. Um, a, a lot of agencies are truly, truly interested in and wanting to prioritize the wellness of their personnel. I think I just come across a lot of agencies not knowing how. And so it almost, I mean, I think we all experience that, right? Like I'm, I'm trying to figure out right now, right. I need to go do some more like functional, um, physical therapy, just start building my body back up. We talked last time around of like years and years of athletic, you know, endeavors that have just broken my body down. And so, but I feel very overwhelmed. I'm like, okay, where do I start? Do I call this person? Do I do that? Like, I know I want to do this now and I'm passionate about it, but where do I start? And I think it's very similar, like that, that feeling of just stuckness. And sometimes when we feel stuck, we just end up not really, we just keep going with the status quo or we don't end up doing anything because we just don't know where to start. So I think a lot of agencies I've talked to, they're like, I have this funding. What do we do with it? You know? (laughs) So, yeah. Which elements of your physicality are you struggling with at the moment? So, um, yeah. So I told you last time around that I have a couple of injuries that are just chronic and they've been there for a long time, my shoulder and in my wrist. Um, but really I want to start reinvesting into my body as a whole, like holistically. Um, and what really brought that about finally was <laughs> I, uh, in January started having my back didn't, I didn't, my back didn't fully go out to where I was like bedridden for days on end, but my back had a problem. 
I was I had a pinched nerve. I couldn't function. I couldn't work out for a couple of weeks. I was in pain. And if you've ever had back problems, I read your book, you've had back problems. Um, you know, it affects everything like that to me, back problems are, are just the worst. I mean, they affect everything. And so, you know, when I ended up going to see a specialist, I'm going like, what the hell happened? Like I, I moved in January because I was picking up boxes or this or that. And they kind of just like looked at me after a while and they were like, I hate to break it to you, but this is a, an accumulation of years. This happened over years and you're just feeling it now. Your body finally, you know, there's one little hair on the camel's back, but this is not from something you just, you, you can't pinpoint this to one thing. You know, the mine is basically like postural and, you know, being in the PhD program and going through all that for 13 years, I'm bent over, you know, looking at my computer. So mine is very postural. And I realized, wow, um, this is very much about like the approach I talk about mental wellness is being proactive, right? If I would have been kind of putting more, investing more in having, you know, a, a workspace that, you know, my eyes are level with the screen and where I can stand and sit and do all these different things that was more ergonomical, I wouldn't have had problems back then. And then I probably wouldn't have the problems I'm having now, right? Because I was putting that time and effort and investment, including monetary into that. So now I'm trying to, now I'm basically, I've started doing a couple different things to where I'm starting to try and re, I call it rebuild my body, but basically focus on what are workouts that I can do? What are things that I can do where I'm, I'm focusing on recovery, functionality, retention, so that my body is preserved for longer, not only to, re not only to remove the pain. So like I've gone to physical therapy many times. Okay. I have this injury, physical, physical, physical for two months. Okay. Then we're done. Then I go back to boom, 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 hurting my body. I want to maintain, I want to reduce the pain and then maintain it through functionality. So that is what I'm doing right now. <laughs> um, and I had to learn the hard way, you know, I think a lot of us do. Well, they say pain is a good teacher, and it's true. Yeah. Did you ever look into yeah. the foundation training that I wrote about helped me for my back injury? No, I did not. So that, I'll give you your homework. So that, that could be uh, something you take away. If you go onto YouTube, um, there's a thing called 12-minute foundation training. They just did a new one. So the one I did for, that fixed my back was 12 years ago. I think they shot that one. Um, that practice is phenomenal and it and it not only will it's not just for the back it's for it's helped my knees it's helped my shoulders because as you said you've got that forward shoulder carriage which pinches nerves and it's probably why you're feeling it in your your wrist it's probably actually being projected down there um even though i mean obviously aside from the athletic um element but that as a go-to while you're trying to figure out pt when i was going to PT because of my back I discovered this from my chiropractor I ended up educating my PT on this practice it was working so much better than anything I was doing that I still did my PT but my warm-up would be this 12-minute foundation training but they have a whole streaming platform with all kinds of exercises that I mean they, they work with like high-level Brazilian jiu-jitsu people Lance Armstrong Kelly Slater um, you know all kinds of people but the guy Eric that founded it who's been on the show multiple times He's like the money thing. People haven't heard of it because he doesn't want to go down the QVC route, but it is such an effective practice. So if you take nothing away from this conversation, just go do that every day for two weeks. And then you tell me if, you know, if you feel something, I mean, it will blow you away. 
I'm highly motivated. I just wrote it down. I am definitely going to do it. Um, cause yeah, it's time to, it's time to start, uh, walking, walking the walk, you know? <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm so invested in the mental health wellness side that, uh, you know, I definitely, uh, put less emphasis on the, on the physical wellness. But as we know, these two things go hand in hand when my back is hurting and I'm not able to enjoy and, and be active and do the things that I enjoy doing. Guess what happens? I get sad. <laughs> so, you know, it affects your physical, your mental health as well. So, um, I'm, I'm thankful that you gave me that, that resource. Well, I'm going to give you another one, which I just came across literally a couple of weeks ago. Now I had, one of the most high-performing people I've ever had on the show, and I just say that because he's the Air Force's AI guru, but he's also a high-level athlete. So, and this he's got an amazing life story. But this is a man who I know is only going to tell me about something if it truly, truly works. He mentioned snake oil. He's not going to be. He's so damn intelligent. There's no way in hell anything's going to get past him. So he talks to me about he had a TBI training for a triathlon. When he came out the other end, he had synesthesia, and these are the people that can smell and taste colors and. He's the real Rain Man stuff. But he said he used this thing called Newcom to get him on his healing journey after his TBI. At the time, this was only available in, in very high-performing kind of areas. So, you know, the NFL, Navy SEALs, NASA, they have these $6,000 machines and you put these headphones on and the eye mask and it takes you through these, these series of kind of therapies, if you like. Um, and he was raving about it. And I'm like, okay, I've got to really learn more about it so i just had the founder of the company jim pool on the show there is a one of the most intelligent human beings that we've ever had in the states um he passed away recently figured out early in his career talking almost 40 years ago now that you can measure the frequencies of nervous system states from anxiety to deep sleep you know theta delta all those and then for Years and years and years, he was trying to figure out, okay, can we manipulate that? And he realized that he could create a, a machine that would send these same waves and it would actually stimulate the brain to downregulate or upregulate depending on what state you're looking for. So that was all well and good, but unless you're a Navy SEAL or an astronaut, you really couldn't access this technology. Well, smart smartphones have become so advanced now that about a year and a half ago, they were able to develop an app that anyone can use now. So I used it again, like CBD, like some of these things. I'm not going in thinking, oh, this is definitely going to work. I'm very, very open-minded. It's not a placebo effect because I don't even know what to expect. I meditate. I do, you know, I exercise. I eat well. I, I abstain from alcohol recently for a long time. And so when I did it, I'm like, well, I'm already clean. So it's not going to have this, I've gone from doing nothing to doing something effect. I was blown away, blown away at how well it works. And you come out of, like, there's a 20-minute one they call power nap. You literally come out feeling like you had a full 90-minute, two-hour sleep. There's ones that actually help you focus if you're working on a study, a book, you know, whatever it is. There's ones that actually help you on the exercise side, which I haven't tried yet, but supposedly the kind of upregulation one. But for me, it's that downregulation, that monkey mind that I've had for so long after two weeks is almost quiet now. It's it's incredible. So that's another wow. thing. I, so everyone you listening. Have, you said it's an app? It's an app. It's called Newcom, N-U-C-A-L-M. And they do have a free trial. If you Google Newcom free trial, there's a, there's a one-week trial. I'm hoping to get them on as a sponsor because I think 
every single person on on the on the developed world needs it um but it's it's never been accessible to the regular people until very recently so i can you know say having tried it and i'm a very um self-experimentation kind of a person and there's a lot of gadgets and hacks that i think are bullshit you know to be honest but this is this is a game changer so um, and my wife has been suffering from back pain recently, more kind of chronic. She just did a session again today and she was like, I got up and my back didn't hurt anymore because that, okay. the body keeps it. the score element, you know. You're really getting me excited about this. Yeah. So I don't like to talk a lot on the on the you know, the podcast, but I think those two, foundation training and Newcom, CBD is another amazing one. Um, those are phenomenal for, you know, you talk about the, the physical side, but the mental down regulation. And for me, what makes me excited whether you're, you know, a hot shot and you finally finish a deployment, whether you're a police officer or a dispatcher or whatever, you've just seen done some horrible shit, and then you've got to go home and be mother, father, you know, whatever. That twenty minute, sit in your car, go in the bunk room, whatever, put the the mask over your face, do a twenty minute one, and you'll down regulate. Now you can safely drive home for us because it's like you kind of had a mini sleep. But also when you walk through the door, you're not going to be thinking about what you just did at 3 a.m. So I think that the applications for the people listening is is phenomenal. Oh, it's huge. Oh, my gosh. I was going to say, I I cannot imagine the impact it would have in the first responder community, given the, you know, we've already talked about, but, you know, on under chronic, with a job that you have to be chronically under stress, right, or quickly under stress, your body, when you're off shift, doesn't just go, oh, okay, like, we're off shift now. Time to relax. It's not the way it does. Again, because scientifically, chemically, what's going on internally, your body doesn't go, okay, I'm off shift. Or we're gonna we're gonna stop here. So that's a big long-standing issue with first responders, I find, particularly with sleep, where they're like, Okay, well, I know I there's all these tools for sleep and there's all these, you know, recommendations, but okay, I go home and I try and sleep and Either I fall asleep fast and then I'm waking up multiple times and I can't stay asleep, right? And that's because the body is trained, their body is trained to be more hypervigilant. So the body's going to wake up more. So having something like you're describing to actually bring the body back down to a state of, of you know, a baseline state uh, would be incredible. Yeah, it's, a, it's amazing. Well, speaking of solutions, Center for Trauma, Anxiety and Stress, we have, you know, this, this, huge nation that we live in with this real need for resources education when it comes to i mean wellness in general but obviously mental health is part of that conversation talk to me about your company and what can you offer agencies and individuals that are listening yeah so there's two parts to my company so one of them is that uh, i offer therapy services for both individuals and couples exclusively to first responders military uh, people in high stress professions and their loved ones. So um, because I live in California and due to licensing laws right now, unfortunately, I can only provide uh, therapy services to people in California, but I can provide them to someone living anywhere in the state of California. So um, we've talked about a lot of things that I, I specialize in, but I use evidence-based treatments for post-traumatic stress injury, trauma, moral injury, guilt, shame, anger is a big one that I do with first responders, um, you know, anxiety, depression, substance abuse. Um, I, like I said, I see a lot of loved ones of first responders. Cause I think that unfortunately sometimes they get kind of lost in the, in the dark, you know, but it, it's a big 
they're a big part of, of it as well. You know, they experience a lot of, of the job in a way as well. Um, and so I think it's important to have culturally competent providers who know the culture and know, you know, what, what goes on in the job and how that impacts uh, other loved ones in the house as well. Um, so yeah, I provide the therapy services. I'm actually might be getting telehealth license in Florida. So I'll keep you updated. Um, but, uh, a, a biggest part of what I do is work with agencies, um, implementing, developing and implementing wellness programs. And I do a lot of different things. Um, one of, so let me, let me talk about this. So I, I very much, um, uh, talk about the proactive approach to wellness. And what I mean by that is every single agency should have not only reactive resources in place. So let's say a uh, first responder kills themselves, right? We have the chaplain come out, the peer support teams come out, um, you know, all these resources that come out in, in the face of a tragedy like that. A lot of agencies have that, but there's a lot of agencies that don't have much or at all a proactive side of things. And so the proactive side of things is meant to do two things. One, most importantly, keep the healthy people healthy. A lot of us, because we're feeling good, we don't take care of our minds or our bodies because we're feeling good. And then 10 years down the line, Brooke's moving in January and all of a sudden her back starts hurting, right? <laughs> so we want to keep the healthy people healthy and we want to be able to provide early intervention for people maybe who start to not feel so well, right? Before that snowball accumulates so much to the point that it rolls off the cliff. We don't, we want to prevent it before it gets to crisis. So how do I do that? So agencies bring me in to do pre mental wellness pre presentations. Uh, I think that's a huge part. I'm a huge fan of doing those because I think psychoeducation, just basically talking and, and informing individuals about, let's say I come in and do one on sleep, general, uh, what sleep does, uh, what impacts sleep negatively, uh, how the uh, first responder service can impact it specifically and uniquely and tips to utilize, that in and of itself is super, super, super impactful because then people know what to look out for. They have tips to, if they're sleeping well right now, great, here's the things to keep doing or here's the things to implement so that you continue to do this so that you are you don't end up having any issues, Right. So that's what presentations do. So I, I I do a lot of customized presentations on sleep, trauma, substance abuse, retirement, all these things. Um, another thing I do is uh, peer support training. So different agencies are at different, um, uh, have different uh, levels of peer support. You know, there's some huge agencies with tons of peer support um, individuals and maybe something, a, a structure already in place. And so I come in to, maybe kind of um, reorganize or polish it up a little bit, provide supervision to peer supporters. And there's some agencies that are smaller with really small, you know, 10 people on their peer support team um, that they don't really know where to start. So I train them in peer support and kind of build it from the ground up. Um, that's another big thing I do. Uh, another aspect of what I do is I, a lot of people call them mental wellness visits. Um, I call them psychological enhancement visits, but basically I think they're becoming more prominent, but agencies using funding to bring a culturally competent provider out once. And if you have the wherewithal twice a year that all of your personnel, including you, the leaders, the leadership, the command 
talk to this person for 30 minutes, right? It's not therapy. Nothing is recorded. No notes are given. It's completely confidential, but it's just normalizing talking to a provider, right? And for some individuals, it can be really helpful. They can have ask about resources, et cetera, but this is just normalizing the process. So that's another big thing I do as well. I do content development resource manuals. I've talked about, you know, where do we start? We want people to be able to have something to go to. Um, so uh, a lot of content development as well. So I'd say those are the four, four biggest things that I do for agencies as well as critical incident response. Beautiful. So where can people find you online and, and the website? Yeah. So my website is www.centertoss.com. So that's center tas.com. Uh, so there's a lot of information about me and my background and the services I provide there. Um, I also have an Instagram. It's Dr. Brooke PhD. Um, that's doctor spelled out B R O O K E PhD. Um, I just actually made that. So I'm like, I just accepted your cute. friend request. <laughs> I know. I was so excited about it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I just started getting into the Instagram world. So pardon me in advance for, you know, maybe having lame content right now. But um, yeah, so those are the two places you can find me. I'm also on LinkedIn as well. So I, again, I'm very, very open to people reaching out to me, even if it's just to talk or have ask questions to network, I'm happy to do, you know, come to the department and do ride alongs, things like that. Again, I'm very, very focused, kind of what we were talking about earlier. It's not all just about business. I want to form relationships with people. I've met so many wonderful people over the last year, just by networking and, and, you know, hopping on a zoom call or getting coffee with them or doing ride alongs. Um, and so, you know, I do welcome people to reach out to me in general. I've had people reach out to me because they saw articles I wrote and just asked me questions or whatever it is. Um, you know, I'm, I'm open to all of that. So I really do welcome that. Beautiful. Well, I want to ask you the same closing questions I did nine months ago, if that's okay. Yeah, I don't remember it. Go ahead. Good. All right. So the first one, <laughs> is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Okay. Well, obviously I always recommend your book, but I truly do. Every time I go and provide a resource manual, I put your book as number one. Um, but aside from that, the two books I always recommend um, are The Body Keeps the Score. Uh, that that book is basically goes more in much more detail with someone much smarter than me, um, a psychiatrist who talks about basically how trauma affects physically the body and the mind, right? So I'll go into a lot of detail about that. And the other one is Why We Why we Sleep um, by Dr. Matthew Walker. He's a, a neuroscientist over at Berkeley. And his, his book is, for me, just truly uh, revolutionary. Um, and it's a very easy, it's not dense. It's a very easy read um, and so informative. Um, and so that's another book I also recommend. Beautiful. What about movies and or documentaries? Oh, movies or documentaries. I don't know. The PTSD 911 documentary came out last year. I do like that. That's a great one. Um, that's a really good documentary. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know how to answer that question. I mean, I watch a lot of movies, but I'm trying to think of, I don't have a, a confident response and, you know, what movie might might fit well for some people and not others brilliant well no the, the documentary is great I actually i spoke to the guy who was making that a long long time ago but that was the last time we spoke but one of my friends from anaheim matt fiorenzo is in that movie i think yeah 
I just met him. Yeah. I just, I spoke at a conference in Vegas, a first responder conference in June. And so I met him and his, his nice dog Axel as well. Beautiful. Well, speaking of great people, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Yeah. So there are a, um, well, the first person that comes to mind, um, she does a lot of, so she has a very large company as well, working with first responders. Um, her name is Heather Williams and she, she's works heavily with law enforcement. I believe her husband is SWAT, um, was working in SWAT, um, you know, for many years as well. Um, she's someone who, you know, who's an expert she's a psychologist, um, who could probably provide a lot of information too. And, um, you know, is, it per- does a lot of really great work. Um, so that's kind of the first person that, that comes to my mind. And I always say to get our mutual friend Rex on here, but he's, he, I've been trying to convince him to come on. So I've been trying to convince him to come on. So <laughs> yeah. maybe, maybe this, this will finally be the one that pushes him over. Maybe I'm going to text him after this and say, you know what? It's settled. You have to go on there. <laughs> Beautiful. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Well then again, you talked about that, um, I'm forgetting the term now, but the the trauma that you get from listening to people talking about their trauma, secondary trauma, is that what they call it? Yeah, there's different words for it, but yeah, secondary trauma, vicarious trauma. Vicarious, that was the word I was looking for. Um, So, you know, obviously this is a discussion for a lot of people in the counseling therapy world. What do you do to decompress? How do you offload that? So just like I preach to first responders, I have to actively do that as well. And when I don't, guess what? I, I feel it. Um, and so it, it's funny. I think there's like a perception that the mental health provider is just this like optimally functioning, uh, you know, resilient uh, person that doesn't get affected by any of this, but it's far from the case. So um, there's a lot of different things I have to actively do um after tough calls if i'm on scene or you know tough day of clinical work talking about these things i have to find different things that work for me to process and decompress i go to therapy myself i'm very open about that um and that's one way that i i work through that um you know just some of the the stuff i experience um i also do a lot of things like you're talking about that basically lower my um sympathetic nervous system or shut it off that sympathetic nervous system, again, is that thing that goes off when we're really stressed, right? It's what makes us feel all jittery and wired up. Um, so for me, I have to, I do things like I will go for a bike ride. I like to be outside, get some sun. Nature is always a go-to for me. Always, 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 always going for a walk, going for a hike, doing things like that, going for a bike ride, being outside. I do things to kind of occupy my mind and, and help my mind decompress like puzzles, whereas I'm, I'm using my mind. Um, but it actually helps to calm my mind and, and take it off of, you know, what I was doing for work. And I have to implement all the sleep stuff that I tell first responders to do. And when I don't, guess what? I stop sleeping. I don't sleep well. So things like not using my phone in bed, using bed only for sleep, not checking my email past a certain time during the day. Um, all these different things that I do uh, that I, and if I stop, if I start to wobble on any of those or, you know, get lazy on any of those, oh, a couple nights in a row, I'm just tired. I'm just going to look at my phone for five minutes. All of a sudden my sleep quality gets impacted. So there is a lot of different things. I really like to let responders know that I, I have to do these things too. 
um, in order to maintain my wellness so that what I do for work doesn't start to impact me because there absolutely have been times when it has. So I do the same thing. I wear the blue blocking glasses at night. Phone goes away. I have a lavender mister that I, I mean, you know, full on hipster. But the new calm <laughs> has another setting, which is called deep sleep. And you put a speaker in your room. You have to plug it in. Um, and there's three settings. I always have the rain one. So it sounds like rain and thunder, which in Florida is, you know, usually what you hear on the outside anyway. But again, those frequencies are getting you to go in that deep sleep because I was able to go to sleep, but I always woke up feeling really tired. So obviously I wasn't, I was still sleeping in that one eye open thing that I did for 14 years wearing uniform. And it's been amazing. It took, to be fair, it took a couple of days to get used to because it was weird hearing stuff. I'm normally very quiet, but um, that's another tool now to, to kind of get you to downregulate out of that again, that uh, hypervigilant state into that relaxed, deep sleep. And that's the, you said the new calm does Yeah, the same app, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, I can, I definitely want to look into that because I can tell you right now, the first thing that starts to go for me when I start to, you know, get a little bit loosey-goosey with these proactive things that I have to do is my sleep. So first thing that goes is my sleep. I start to just wake up feeling tired. I'm waking up during the night. I can't fall asleep. I call it wired, but tired. I'm tired. I'm so tired. I haven't slept for a few nights, but I get into bed and I'm wired and, you know, just can't. So that's always my first indicator of like, okay, we got to identify things when we have to start ramping up, um, you know, tools and resources. And my sleep is always the first place that it shows. Yeah, no, it's been amazing. And it, Jim actually said, you may well make wake up halfway through your sleep because when you're in that deep restorative sleep, your body is cleaning the way it was supposed to and you might need to pee. But what I find is sometimes I wake up, sometimes I don't, but you know, sometimes I need to pee, sometimes I don't, but you just go straight back into sleep again. So it's just it's so alien to me, but um um, you know, I even my son, who's only almost sixteen, um, that's apparently when we start to shift away from the deep, deep sleep that children get um and he's been doing it and he's like yeah i slept really well last night so it's three hey, different people now pumped real pumped i'm real pumped up yeah yeah it sounds like a like a sales pitch but it's not i just prophesize when i find something that's gonna change people's lives so i i that's i know that you wouldn't talk about this if you didn't think it was actually legit which is why i'm so excited about it absolutely well, I, get, I just want to say thank you again. We've been talking for almost two hours again. That means I think it's four and a half hour conversation if you put the two together. But we, <laughs> we, I think we did a good job of kind of circumnavigating some of the things that we discussed the first time, but then layering on some other things. So I want to thank you for being so generous yet again and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me, James. I swear I could talk to you forever. Two hours goes by real fast. 